Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 169. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and the Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One, by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down on his songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. This changed the fortunes for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. You can now order my latest book, the TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue, Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have the grandson of the classic Looney Tunes director Chuck Jones, who is also the president of the Chuck Jones Gallery, Craig Cosson. We also have cartoon research columnist Camden Spees. And here they are. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. And today I have Craig Cosson, who is the head of the Chuck Jones Gallery. And I have, as usual, Camden Spees, who helps bring me animation-related guests to my show. So welcome, both of you, to my show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to, uh, to, to meeting your audience. All right, very good. So um, I guess to start the show off, I mean, you can introduce and say who you are and how, if, I, if you want to lead into how you founded the Chuck Jones Gallery. Yeah. So, so I, my name is Craig Koss, and I uh, I'm I'm also uh, not only um, one of the founders of the Chuck Jones Gallery. Um, I'm also one of Chuck's grandsons. So I uh, the long story is I kind of got sucked into the family business years ago, and uh, but along with the Chuck Jones Gallery, uh, we founded in boy the first one I guess was 1992. And uh, they've been all over the place, uh, still have galleries in multiple cities. Uh, but the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity was founded in 1999, which is the, the 501c3 public charity that we run as well. Um, there's also the Chuck Jones Museum. So it's, it's like the entire Chuck Jones universe I get to play in and on almost a daily basis. So um, that's, uh, I've been doing it now for Boy, going on 31 years since I've been involved. But I guess my whole life I've been involved with the Chuck Jones family. So it, it all sort of makes sense at some point. And then presently, where do you have locations? All these locations you're talking about. Yeah, so... Ben, we interviewed Ben, too. We interviewed Ben twice. He liked it so much, we came back. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, um, so go ahead, go ahead, Camden. I was going to ask, um, so y'all have one in Chicago still? So the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity is in the Chicagoland area. Ben just moved. He was the, he's a board member for the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity. Uh, ben is one of our artists that we publish through the Chuck Jones Galleries as well. Uh, but he founded the, the Chicagoland Center and then he moved to Florida two weeks ago and he's founding the uh, Central Florida Chuck Jones Center for Creativity down there. So uh, Ben has been a great conduit for the Chuck Jones world as well. And so I'm glad he's been on here to share his world and talk about an enthusiastic guy. So uh, the um, we do have the Chicago land. We've got Southern California that we're, uh, in fact, this week we're doing the fundraiser for the, which is the Red Dot 12 um, uh, fundraiser where artists donate works of art. Camden, you've seen it before. I think you've even been there, but uh, this year we have 160 artists who have donated works of art and they go on, uh, they, they've been bidding on for about four weeks now and, and so the events this Saturday. So we've got that location here in Southern California. The, the event actually is going to be virtual. Ben will be hosting along with my mother and my brother uh, the virtual event on Saturday evening. I will be in person at the uh, artist and sponsor um, appreciation reception at the Bowers Museum. They have a little, well, not a little, but a, uh, a side museum called the Kidsium, 
that we're going to host the event at. It's 11,000 square foot space that we're now running programs out of. So we've got that. We've got a gallery in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which we've been there for now 29 years. That's hard to believe that that is still uh, going on there at that. We've been in a few locations there. We've got the San Diego gallery. And then uh, we've got a We've got a small gallery space here in Orange County um, that we operate out of, but the, uh, we do pop-ups now. We've been in San Francisco. We've did a, we have five years in a row. We've done a pop-up gallery in Palm desert for the month of January to April. So, um, it just seems to continue to spread, uh, museum exhibitions. So the, th the third, uh, organization is the Chuck Museum. We just, um, had the, uh, the extension of the Smithsonian tour that we had uh, rolling around the country from 2014 to 2017, where the, uh, the sites, the Smithsonian exhibits, uh, the extension of that was in Irvine, here in my hometown at Great Park, Irvine, from uh, July to December last year. And so we did programs there, uh, had a pop-up gallery in Irvine at the, at the, uh, the Spectrum there. So. I'm confused just talking about all the spaces, but uh, they, they seem to be all going on and more museum exhibitions to come. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're home based in Irvine then? I am. Oh, I am okay. for many years. Now, when Chuck was still alive, uh, was he home based there or where did he live? So he was up until, let's see, I think he, he well, he was in Hollywood almost his entire adult life. Right. Grew up there as well. Um, uh, was in production until the 90s. So I had a house up in Hollywood Hills, uh, the, one of the last houses that my mother grew up in in the 50s. He kept that until the 90s. And then uh, when he located down here, he was in Newport Beach in Colonel Mar. And so my grandmother moved down. When we moved back into town in the 60s, she decided to come down and be more of a, a grandmother to us little kids and then Chuck came back and forth from LA when he was creating things like the Grinch and Phantom Tollbooth and the Crickets and the Kiplings in the 70s. And, and so he was both in Hollywood and in Colonel Mar uh, pretty much the, all the way to the end of his life and, and lived in Colonel Mar when he passed away in 2002. Hmm. Now, when were you first aware that Chuck Jones was the Chuck Jones? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, it, uh, people do ask me kind of what it was like growing up with him. And nobody really knew that, uh, I mean, people knew, I knew that he created cartoons, but it didn't really mean anything to anybody. It was just, you know, a grandfather who had a job. He wasn't famous. There was no accolades for any of the guys who, who worked on the Looney Tunes. I mean, it happened to be something that occurred from the 30s to the 60s, and then Warner Brothers shut down the the animation studio and a lot of the guys just went off and retired or went off to other studios and he started chuck jones uh productions and started doing his own uh animation he decided that he still needed to survive and and make a living and you know warner brothers owned all the characters so it wasn't like there was royalties that were coming in on anything so uh he just decided that he wanted to continue to create so um uh, I think probably when I was maybe a late teenager and people started to recognize that there was something special and it probably 
uh, coincided with my mother starting the art business in 1977, around that time, as people were interested in what he had done. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, as he was invited more in to do more radio and television interviews, and people uh, became aware that there were people, you know, like Frizz Freely and Chuck and, and Bob McKimson and, and Tex Avery and Bob Clampett, who, and, and their teams, you know, that there was a guy named Maurice Noble who created these brilliant backgrounds and the designs uh, that there are people behind all this artistry. And I think all of a sudden there became a recognition that it was an art form and which Chuck always believed, but then more and more people came to recognize it, that it was something special. And the things that were being done on television during the, the 60s and into the 70s were not even close to the same artistic value and certainly the, the quality of animation. So I think through people um, like, uh, you know, the, the writers with Time Magazine and, and Stephen Camper and, and uh, 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 missing a Solomon, Charles Solomon, a writer for the LA Times. And they started to articulate uh, a lot of the things that they've recognized in Chuck's work. So I think I certainly wasn't ahead of the game as right. far as recognizing <laughs> that he was something special, but, uh, but for a long time, I was like, as people, you know, so you related to Chuck Jones. I said, yeah, he's the guy who does Bugs Bunny and those kind of things. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then, you know, fast forward decades later and they're like, Oh, wow. That's really cool. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> It was really cool. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I saw the name Chuck Jones probably was on Looney Tunes, just saying directed by either Chuck or Charles M. Jones, depending on the cartoon. And uh, but the first time I knew him as kind of a separate entity was probably in the 70s when he was doing like those Ricky Tiki Tavi and uh, the White Seal and those type of specials. And he was kind of yeah. doing his own thing. Yeah, and, and I think that was when I, because I, I wasn't around when he was doing the Looney Tunes. He had, I was born in 1962, and, and he uh, left Warner Brothers around that time in 62, 63, right. and started Chuck Jones Productions. So um, I, I remember a little bit uh, when he was at MGM, but really the animation that I appreciated and grew up with and, and waited, I never saw it before it was on television, but I thought it was very cool to see the the cricket in Times Square or Ricky Tiki Tavi or um, you know the White Seal and and I I don't know if um, if you've ever heard the story but the when Chuck was doing research on the White Seal and he always did lots of research and and uh, I, I I wasn't experiencing when he did the Ricky Tiki Tavi but he said that he saw a film of cobras. At, at that time, very difficult to see, um, you know, subtle movements, mm-hmm. but there was somebody who had filmed a, a, uh, a, a mongoose and that at 10,000 frames per minute. And hey. so a very, very high resolution and that, that they had determined that one of the reasons why they believed that a mongoose would always, um, or that the, the cobra, uh, they had this interaction between them and, and the cobra made a slight movement backwards 
before he lunged, which gave the mongoose the opportunity to understand that it was coming and react quickly. And so he put those types of details in there. Now, when it came to the white seal, my grandmother, uh, Dorothy, I called her Nani, and it was always Nani, Chuck and Nani, never called Chuck grandpa or anything like that. But um, <laughs> we went down to SeaWorld and Chuck had reached out to SeaWorld to ask if he could come down and study the marine life. And we'd been down there before, but uh, this must have been eight or nine years old and, and gone down with uh, Chuck and my grandmother to, and, and while my grandmother and my brother and I went from show to show, you know, seeing Shamu or seeing the dolphins or seeing the seals and sea lions and whatnot, he got behind the scenes access to go and sketch and draw and learn about their movements. And so, um, and as he learned about sea lions, which is what the white seal was, it wasn't actually a seal, it was a sea lion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that one of the differences between a seal and a sea lion is that a, a sea lion has their knees tucked up underneath them. And so they're, they're basically, when they move, they're up on their knees, whereas a seal is a flat and really doesn't ever get on their knees and they just kind of wobble around there. But <laughs> as he knew from studying early on that every mammal has basically the same skeletal structure and, and almost all of the same bones are in a sea lion that are in a human. You know, they each, we each have a, an ulna and a tibia and a humerus and, and femurs and, and that uh, the, um, you, if you look at them, they're just different lengths and they're different positions, but we're all mammals are basically the same structurally. And so he had a theory that if, and, and, and the reason that they move the way they do sea lions is they're constrained within all that blubber and their, their <laughs> arms are inside the, and the flippers are out here, but inside they're trying to move the same way. And so he had a theory that if you constrained a human the same way that a sea lion was constrained, that that the human would have to move and and swim and and you know move on land the same way. And so Chuck was great with theories, but he loved testing his theories. And so um, at the age of I was ten and my brother was eleven, he brought us down to his house in Cronomaru, my grandmother, and he came down on the weekends to visit. And uh, and he decided to test out his theory by taking us and and putting fins on us and putting fins on our hands and tying our elbows to our body, tying our knees and ankles together and then throwing us in the pool. And to- To, to, to drown. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, fortunately, fortunately we, uh, we were already very good swimmers and were on swim teams. So uh, we figured out very quickly how we needed to move. And it turns out that it was very similar to the way that a dolphin or a sea lion moved through the water. And so he sketched little doodles of us swimming and whatnot. And there are still some photos somewhere of that experience in that pool. But uh, yeah, it, that, that to me was one of the times where I thought, okay, you know, maybe my grandfather is not quite the same as every other grandfather. <laughs> when he's, no. very, uh, he's very thoughtful and he's also got a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Now, when he was making these shows or later stuff, did you actually go into the studio and watch like a, maybe a storyboard meeting or anything? Yeah, over the no, years? no. Camden, did you have a question? Sorry. Yeah, no, but yeah, but let, let answer Mark's first. Okay, all right. So um, while I was growing up, I never got really, there wasn't any opportunity because 
as they were in production, that's that they were just there every day going through the process. And, uh, you know, we were in school, my mom was raising three kids. It just wasn't a thing. But I remember when he was doing the curiosity shop for ABC television, when he became the vice president of children's programming, or I guess executive vice president of children's programming at ABC in the early seventies, uh, curiosity shop was a live action weekly show that came on Saturday mornings that had uh, a weekly element of animation that he got to bring to it. And it really was about, and, and I, now I look back and kind of think it was sort of a precursor to the ideas of the Center for Creativity, that curiosity is everything. And that if you're, you know, venturing into new ideas that you're stimulating your creativity. So we got to go up uh, one time to visit the cast and see the set where they did all the filming and meet the crew. And in, I think the most famous, and I can't remember her name, but I believe that she was the voice of, uh, I think she was Sally on uh, on the- I, I know who you're talking about, Mark. She was also on Star Trek, I think. Okay. Well, yeah, it's Pamela Ferdin and she was the yeah, voice of Lucy. Lucy, and, that's and, what and it some was. of the peanut specials. That's what it was. So yeah. she was, yeah, and early and to meet her, and then there were other guys that were there. There was she was sort of one of the older kids, and right. and so you know they had fun with, uh, you know, within the curiosity shop. You don't go down the pole because they had a fireman pole there that they would they go up the pole, and so you know they they'd slide down and they reverse the film and then show them going up the pole back to their sort of hideout area and. And that lasted about a year and a half until Chuck, because uh, he had about 20 minutes of animation every week that was um, part of the storytelling because there was this old television on the set that they would then interact with. And, and he came to realize that 20 minutes, even 10 minutes of weekly animation was just impossible. Mm. That to do it in the, in the uh, quality that he was used to doing, he, he couldn't keep up and so even though they did make it more simple and the characters were individual and the backgrounds were not complex to animate characters in the way that he wanted to uh he just couldn't do it and so after about a year and a half he said i i don't think this has got legs on it it, it did very well from what i understand but mm -hmm. i can't find those films anywhere that all the masters and whatnot I, must I have tell you craig my friend tim Wallace, who owns a cartoon museum here in birmingham yeah, um, he has two copies of two prints that he sent me. I oh, great! Get copies of those. Love to see them again because I've seen, I've heard some, some audio things that were recorded, but they were more just sound effects, but none are, of the actual things. That's great. There are two episodes that exist now still, and he sent me copies of them. I can get you copies as well. Great, that would, would be, be more great. than happy to send you a DVD of them. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd love, love to see them too, them. actually. <laughs> Because um, I used to watch it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Craig, I have a question for you. Go ahead. So I've been wanting to ask you this. And Mark, I put to tell you the note, please. Um, so I was really looking at Curtis Finley's book, and I know you were the model of this guy right here who I have the print of. Yeah. Yeah. So I was ask you about that because from your perspective about being the model for Crawford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there it is. I tell you. Well, so I I, I tell you the story that I knew Crawford. Um certainly growing up. I knew of <coughs> cartoons, I knew of his drawings, I knew of the 
uh, comic strip version of it. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, so, so, I mean, I love the drawing. I love the gags. My brother actually was, was showcased in one of the, um, one of the strips. Yeah, uh, this was fun. The, the Frisbee. I'm, I'm actually interviewing Todd shortly for an article for Cartoon Research about the Pogo special. Great. Yes. Well, he was instrumental in that as well. And, and he got to go on the, the production set with Ward Kimball and those guys. So um, I was always jealous of that whole thing, but he, but he did, he made that. So I, I knew that, uh, that, you know, it existed. I loved the gags. It was sort of Chuck again, so much work being put in to do a daily strip. He said that was one of the most challenging things he ever did. And, and so um, I always appreciated it, but uh, fast forward to, to the year 2010. So Chuck has been gone for eight years now. And, and we had the opportunity at times to go through archives and, um, and there was a couple of letters that were written to my great-grandmother, his mother, from the early 70s, uh, talking about when uh, he was hired on to ABC for the children's programming and, and a note at the bottom. And he wrote many handwritten letters you know, to his mother, to others. He was a great letter writer. And so I was reading through this and, and it was just sort of what was going on and, and you know, what he was happening in, in Hollywood and whatnot and uh, the studio. And now that he, at the very end it said, and now I'm, I'm being hired on, I'm excited about being the executive vice president of children's programming. And I think I may just be able to get my beloved uh, Crawford animated, who you know is, is patterned after uh, you know, my grandson, Craig. And I, I stopped and I read it again. And I called my mother and I said, now I, I'm reading this letter to Nana. That was what I call my great grandmother. And she called her grandmother. Um, and it says down here that he is gonna get the, to do Crawford and it's patterned after me. And she goes, well, of course it is. Didn't you know that? I had no idea that that until that moment that this, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's absent-minded or just curious or, you know, always getting into trouble, had no idea it was patterned after me. And so that literally was the time. So I never had the opportunity to ask Chuck, you know, why Crawford was inspired by what I was as a little kid growing up in the 60s. So anyway, that uh, so hopefully that answers your question that I have no idea what it was like being the model of, of Crawford because I had no idea I was the model of Crawford. <laughs> Did you act Did differently you than your... Oh, sorry. All, though? Say it again, Camden? Did you ever talk about Crawford at all, though, when you, when you, were, when you were with him? Well, I mean, he always talked about the, uh, the, the, the fun of these characters and, and what, it, in some respect, I kind of look at the way that he, it, it wasn't mischievous. It was just life and the opportunities to, to play around with things in life that Chuck's off funny. And so, you know, and the way that the sister interacted with, you know, Crawford and the way that his friends and, and, and the dog and all of the characters in there. Um, and, and looking back, you know, it, it was sort of, what was Crawford about? It was about nothing, you know, it was just about 
funny parts of life. And, and if you take it in that vein, it was sort of the original Seinfeld, you know, that it was just life and looking at amusing anecdotes. And it happened to be based around these children and what uh, things they got into. So um, he, he talked about the fun of the characters. I think more than anything, he talked about the, the difficulty of every day seeing that page stare at you and that you had a deadline to do every single day. And once again, it lasted about a year and a half before he just went, wow, you know, and he met some wonderful people there and he was part of the, he was an honorary member of the uh, cartoonist society and he knew people like Herb Block and Mike Peters and, and uh, many of those guys that did uh, uh, political cartoons and editorial things as well. So, um, you know, he, he appreciated what they did and it was his way to sort of play in that medium. But um, I think after a while, he figured out that if he wasn't going to be able to animate, maybe he could bring it to life in, in comic strip. Now, uh, I forgot. Do you say you have siblings as well? I do. I have an older brother and a younger sister. Okay. Did yeah. they make their way into this strip at all? Or... Why only the focus? Todd. I mean, only my brother Todd, who okay. there Camden knows the the uh, the strip where um, my brother was a discus thrower in high school, a very accomplished one, and so uh, Chuck brought in the uh, idea of um, of Crawford uh, beating Todd Cousins' record in the discus throw, and then the punchline is that it's not a discus; it's, it's a it's a frisbee that he threw. And so, but I do remember that Chuck reached out to, uh, what is it, who is it, Hasbro or the Frisbee company who owned the brand. Oh, Whammo. Whammo, Whammo is that who it was? Yeah, okay. Whammo. <laughs> and uh, that, they, uh, that they said, you know, certainly use it in there, but you need to refer to it as a Frisbee disc because the Frisbee can't become generic. And I still remember I was probably 15 years old Oh, and the distinction between it, between, you know, a Frisbee and a Frisbee disc and, and with the trademark and everything else that had to go along with it. So I, I, with the, and I was going to ask Todd this when I interviewed him, because I actually have a picture I scanned it from the dot book. Would that make Todd the only member of your family that's been name dropped in the Chuck Jones production? I would say that's probably true. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember uh, any reference to any of us. I will say that uh, that um, there is a reference to my mother in Phantom Tollbooth, and not by name, but by birthday. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Do you remember the scene, Camden? No. Yeah, so I know, I know, but the reference to a birthday in Phantom Tollbooth is when uh, when Officer Short Shrift comes rolling into the car and uh, you know, and he's yelling, guilty, 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 guilty. And uh, he asks Milo when he's when he's there, you know, he pulls out his pad and he's writing down things. Where were you on July 25th? And he goes, he goes, I, I don't know. I I don't know where I was on July 25th. And he goes, you know, why? And he goes, that's my birthday. And so he took <laughs> my mom's birthday and put it in there. So we always thought that was very, 
fun. That was what, 1970 or 71. So it was, I always thought of my mother. Yeah. Speaking of birthdays, um, the Pogo special, I'm gonna bring that up again. That was based on Todd saying something about a family birthday. And y'all said that, and for a while, I think that y'all's family celebrate that. Do you still celebrate a family birthday? No, it was uh, it was fairly short lived, and and I think uh, you know when the family gets so big that there's so many birthdays as it is. But it was a concept that everybody had their birthday, and he said, "Why don't we have a family birthday?" And Chuck sort of that was the a little like a spark of inspiration that uh, that Chuck kind of ran with, and and decided that there was some some legs there. And so they discussed it some more. And Todd can tell you the details because I wasn't a part of that. I didn't get invited to anything. I didn't get the hundred dollars that he made. I didn't get anything. So <laughs> not that I'm bitter to this day. <laughs> yeah, and he'll 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 remember exactly. He said, I, I could have sworn it was $100. He might say it was $50 as a, as a, uh, a royalty for the usage of it. But um, yes, and I saw a picture of him, and I'm sure he can find that for you, of him sitting with Chuck and Walt Kelly in his, you know, yeah. Brooks Brothers suit, you know, because every eight-year-old needs a Brooks Brothers suit to go to Hollywood, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, he, uh, I mean, being the eldest, he was smarter than the rest of us, maybe, so. So, and what's interesting, though, it's the bottom of, I'm writing an article for part two of cartoon research about the special, which, I'm going to be honest, and I was honest, and I told Linda this, I'm like, this is definitely not one of Chuck Jones's best works, because it just didn't match Kelly's style, right? I don't yeah. think. Yeah, Okay. But it has a very charming story to it. And that's why you like it. It has a very charming origin to it. I think that's why people like it. But um, so like I I did the part one was like this interview with Chuck Jones and then another interview with Jim Foray with the special. And part two is all about Todd. And the okay. whole thing. Nice. And nice. Um, at the bottom of one of the articles from 69 that I'm reprinting for it, it says, it's like this, like, it sounds like a Superman news flash. It says, could... Could the family birthday replace Christmas and Easter? Could it replace the regular birthday? Could it devolve our actual need for presents? We'll only have to wait until find out. And then, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, come back soon next week to see. That's awesome. I'll, I, I, I don't remember much of that interaction. I remember I actually enjoyed the the special quite a bit and I obviously it was not right on model of Walt Kelly's and uh and but you know if you look at the history of what Chuck did <laughs> with books and with two-dimensional you know static characters he evolved them into his own always right. and so he couldn't just animate what others did in a static fashion right. how the Grinch stole Christmas was a classic uh, um, example of that, and that that uh, that he had to evolve things into his own style, and so um, and and you know, Dr. Seuss was not nearly involved in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. He was more involved in Horton Hears Who, and then as he brought in other directors on his other books and and films obviously things evolved to be more like the book 
but Chuck, Chuck could take a story, envision it in his mind, and then create that in what he saw. And so obviously, if you read the book, uh, Ricky Tiki Tavi or the Kipling classics and the, the stories that, that you have your own vision of it, but Chuck had the ability to now bring it to life with his characters. So um, it doesn't surprise me that it's not on model as far as uh, Pogo. I was gonna ask though also, um, Kipling, they adapted the Jungle Book, Mowgli's Brothers, which I think is like the sequel to the Jungle Book, the first book. I don't I know so. much about Kipling, so. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, didn't Kipling's family? I read somewhere that Kipling's family liked it better than the Disney version. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Chuck wanted to uh, honor the the author and the, okay. the in, you know the meaning of a writing, and so you know he was a voracious reader and and read everything, and so appreciated the written word and what the. The, the, the writer was attempting to communicate. And so that visual interpretation, um, you know, first of all, it was, uh, it was Mowgli. So, and because obviously Disney had pronounced it Mowgli mm -hmm. and that, that really took a lot of license for the story when they did their Jungle Book. And, and I've read and heard that uh, Disney specifically told all of the writers and all of the animators not to read the book for the by Kipling that do not you know this is our story it's our interpretation it's our stuff so don't even read it whereas when Chuck came around and found you know classic stories by great writers like Kipling um, he decided that uh, he wanted to do it justice and so he actually reached out to uh, Kipling's granddaughter, if I remember the story correctly, the timing would have been about right. And she was in England and, and called her and, uh, and said, so I just, I want to know, I've always pronounced it Mowgli. And, and, and obviously, um, is it Mowgli or Mowgli in this British Chuck? I remember Chuck talking about this. He said, he said I'm on the phone and, and this deep, you know, um, British accent. It is Mowgli. I hate Walter Disney. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> he sort of just went, okay, so we're going to do this justice. And, uh, and so uh, Mowgli's brothers was born and, and, uh, you know, Chuck through his love of animals and his research and, and uh, certainly he wanted to, to give um, this story, you know, the human was humanized and the, uh, the animals were not humanized. They acted and they, they, although they spoke, they communicated that they, they ran and they walked and they acted like animals. And he thought that was the way that he believed that Kipling would want this to be done. And so... Uh, and the white seal, you know, one of the greatest pieces of animation that I know of. And then, and then when we got to uh, Ricky Tavi, and you know, they each had their 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 classic moments. So, yes, Mowgli's Brothers was very different, and Chuck, you know, wanted to honor Kipling and the family. 
I have a question. Um, did he ever, did Chuck ever resent going back to the Looney Tunes after doing all those specials? Because, you know, it seems like after he did all those specials and kind of doing his own thing, uh, then he was doing things like uh, Connecticut Rabbit and King Arthur's Court and Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, things like that. It, it, did he consider that like a few steps back or was he fine to take on new uh, Looney Tunes work? Oh, he he loved doing the Looney Tunes. I mean, okay. his his uh, I think he would have wanted to continue to animate the Looney Tunes uh throughout the entire time you know with when the when the short subject studio shut down in the early 60s uh obviously it was time for him to go on and do other things and and really there weren't any there were a few things being done at seven arts but that was a if you look at those those uh looney tunes cartoons they they were very different than the originals so um and the budgets changed so much, you know, that it was, uh, no one was paying for a short subject animated special the way that Chuck needed to be, have his crew paid to create such quality animation. And so um, it was only in the seventies that the, when the, and I think it really has to do when animation fell off the cliff. Disney fell off the cliff in animation in the late 60s and early 70s. And everybody figured that maybe animation was done. And, you know, Chuck really put a lot of effort into keeping quality animation as an art form alive in the 70s by doing these television specials and, and you know, that you could, and it would take him nearly a year to do these animated specials of 23 minutes. And so, um, nobody else was doing that. Almost everybody else was doing, you know, weekly half an hour specials that you know, certainly didn't look the same. And so um, for him to get the opportunity by going back to Warner Brothers and, and my mother starting the art business and, and reaching out to Warner Brothers about um, artwork and, you know, production art and, and whatnot, because the inquiries were starting to come in, people appreciating that it was an art form, that there was an opportunity to create new content. Now you couldn't create a movie for the budget. So of course they would have to take the class cartoons, rebundle them and do bridge work that for, with the new animation there. And so he was able to create that. So the Looney Tunes characters, as he always said, they were like his children. And so when he was not able to use them, it was like being cut off from your children from an extended period of time. And, and the art world gave him that conduit as well to go back and start to play with the characters in, you know, pencil and in watercolor and in, and in oil painting and, and other ways so that he got to take these children that he had that came from him and see what they would do in static, uh, you know, ideas or, or scenes, you know, it's not just the cartoons, it's what would they do in this situation? He, he always thought that was the fun part is to, mm -hmm. to write again. So yes, it, he was thrilled to be able to do production with the Looney Tunes again and put together a team of people who could animate. Um, many of his team from before were gone come the 70s and the 80s. Oh, yeah. But uh, And then in the 90s, he got the opportunity one more time to go and do Chuck Jones film productions from 93 to 97 
and create six short subjects. And uh, they were just starting to roll through with these young animators and young directors to create that, that magic that they had, you know, sort of be left alone and let them be creative and to, to do these short subjects. And Warner Brothers, once again, couldn't figure out what to do with them. And, and you know, <laughs> they're, they're expensive to make when you do it in that quality. And so they shut down the studio again. And, and uh, that's when Chuck sort of really focused on more again on the art. And, uh, and that was, he was just about done until he did um, uh, uh, Timberwolf, you know, which was his only digital platform that some of the guys from Chuck Jones Film Productions came back and did. But uh, yeah, he loved working with Looney Tunes. Cool. I have a question. So I know that um, other than Chuck, I know that very early on, I think a little bit later, but earlier on, Linda and Ruth Clampett shared Frizz a bit back and forth. They happily shared Frizz because I know they both work together. I have Frizz and, um, and but I know that um, besides Chuck, I know with Frizz, when did y'all start working with other characters outside of the Tunes the gallery did? Ah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, we, um, uh, I mean, to begin with, my mother was the only publisher in town. And right. then uh, it really started it and continued to grow it through the gallery network. And and Ruth came in uh, later and started to publish her father's things. And then when the when the Warner Brothers Studio Stores came uh, to be in the early '90s, about '93, because um, my mother's you know, the 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 production company without the galleries, we were selling to she was selling to galleries all over the world. Right. And uh, she was just creating the Chuck Jones artwork. She was creating artwork for Bob Clampett's family. She was creating things for Frizz Freeling's family and putting a few other artists. Mike Peters was being represented uh, with us, the cartoonist, uh, Mother Goose and Grimm, uh, Kathy Guyswhite from the Kathy um, uh, uh, cartoon strip, uh, uh, mm -hmm. comic strip. So it was feeding more and more in there. And then when the studio stores came in, uh, they ended up um, uh, hiring Ruth to do um, quality control and art development for the studio stores. And so then we became a production house for the Looney Tunes characters for the Warner Brothers studio stores. And then we continued to have relationships with other galleries throughout the world with the non-Looney Tunes uh, artwork. And so the um, then in, I think it was 2001 or 2002, we were, uh, well, in 1993, one of the things that we were able to do with our new relationship with Warner Brothers was to open galleries. And that was really the impetus to open the first Chuck Jones gallery was that they were taking over the relationships with the galleries for the artwork. And we were then uh, with the opportunity to produce the artwork, but what other ways could we uh, provide Chuck's art outside of the, the studio stores, which I'll be honest, I never thought was the appropriate place for all that artwork. And, and you know, it was not an art gallery. It was, a, it was a merchandise store and the art galleries were the right place for Chuck's artwork and the other, you know, fine art that was being created. So the, uh, we got the opportunity to open uh, our own galleries, our own Chuck Jones galleries. 
and developed those. So we, our first one was in Corona Mar. And then uh, in 1993, we opened the Santa Fe Gallery. And, uh, and then in 1996, we opened up the San Diego Gallery. And then the short-lived San Francisco Gallery opened in 97 and closed in 98. And uh, beautiful space, but- I it, remember that. It, I was living was, there at the time. Yeah. Right? yeah, it was uh, it was a little bit like having a fourth <laughs> child and, and just there are too many hands to deal with. And, and uh, so it was, it was just got cumbersome. So we decided to, you know, really focus on the three. And, uh, and so that was how we got, and it was purely Chuck and a few other artists like Frizz and whatnot that we continued to represent some things from. But then in about 2001, because we'd been doing it for a number of years, we had a lot of uh, collectors who asked, you know, why don't you bring in Disney and Peanuts and and other you know uh, studios that that would we would love to collect and we love to collect with you. So you know you're the you're the guys who seem to care about us the most in in a gallery setting. And so we started relationships with other publishers and people who had licenses with other properties and and started to bring that in. And then um, when it came to Looney Tunes. The studio stores went away in the late 90s. And so it, that was fine. I mean, um, then we started uh, in the early 2000s bringing on other artists doing Looney Tunes, uh, you know, things. John Alvin was one of the first ones. He was the movie poster artist that did E.T. and, and <laughs> Blazing Saddles and whatnot. And he was a fine artist extraordinaire. And so we met him and represented his work from about 2001 to 2008 and he was really starting to to flourish and other artists were coming into the to the stable of artists that we were representing so um you know that's how it and it just continued to evolve over the years that you know people and artists would approach us you know i love looney tunes can i can i play with those characters and, <laughs> sure, yeah let's let's do that and so now we've got a couple handfuls of artists that we're regularly doing uh, artwork with and offering it to um, all of the galleries and and hoping to to continue that expression of Looney Tunes and Chuck's legacy and and the artists that we're supporting are you know like Ben are having a great time. You guys still sell artwork to other galleries too? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, the uh, you know, there's not nearly as many as there were when we had 150 galleries in 1992 that we were uh, <laughs> selling to all around the world. But, uh, you know, there's uh, handfuls of, of galleries around um, the country and uh, North America and Australia that we continue to do business with. Yeah. Um, so I ask, uh, in the early days of the gallery, did Chuck himself do any participation or did he just lend his name and say, take care of it? <laughs> well, I mean, he certainly was not in any sort of, uh, of the functional way. And he wasn't in the art business. He was never participatory okay. in the business side of things. His, mm -hmm. his business was creating cartoons and he was an artist creating imagery and, and uh, fine art. And then my mother was always the one who, who took it, created the business model, created the business flow, uh, took care of all of that. When the gallery started, 
uh, he was more than willing to come and do appearances, which is what it was, and provide artwork for the collectors who wanted it. And so um, we did many events at the Colonel Marr Gallery, at the Laguna Beach Gallery, at the San Diego Gallery. He even appeared a couple of times in San Francisco. And he, he, the reason that we actually opened up Santa Fe, New Mexico as a gallery, uh, you know, one, it was a logical thing because it was the highest density art uh, market as far as the number of galleries in a square mile range than anywhere else in the country. Wow. And secondly, and probably more importantly, it's a place that Chuck loved to go. You know, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It has an incredible opera. And so uh, he would travel out there regularly anyway. So we decided, well, if he's going to be there, let's open a gallery so that when he goes out, we can do an event and he can appear. And so it happened for many years, starting in 1993. And uh, in fact, in uh, December of 93, we opened the gallery, I think in June of 93 and, uh, well, established it. And then I think we opened in September, but we had the major grand opening in December of 1993. And it was, the weather was so cold that it was in the teens. And we had a second story gallery, uh, on Palace Avenue. It's sort of a block off the plaza there. And, and, uh, and so it's probably 15 or 17 degrees outside and, and uh, no one in, in Santa Fe had ever experienced anything like an animation art gallery before. <laughs> it was all Southwest and Native American. And, and I had so many naysayers that it'll never work in Santa Fe. That's not what people <laughs> look for. And so uh, we planned and, uh, and, and marketed the grand opening and, and so, um, you know, I, I was with Chuck. He was over at uh, one of the hotels nearby and, and uh, it was so cold that they sent uh, a car. So to get him and, and we got in the, it was a, a, a town car, a limousine, but brought him over to the gallery, which is only two blocks away. And we had to, there was a, there was a, uh, an elevator that was around back. And as we drove up the line from the second story came around the, the area on the, on the top, went down the stairs and then down the street, probably oh, wow. two blocks. And the gallery was already full. So they were regulating, it was only a thousand square foot gallery upstairs. And it was sort of our tiptoe, you know, tip, uh, put our toe into the water in Santa Fe. And we had somewhere on the order of 1200 people show up for that grand opening. And they stood in line and it was supposed to be a two hour event. And there was the, the, the mayor was there and a shaman came to bless the thing. And it was just a, a wonderful uh, event. And after two hours, the staff came over and, and I was kind of worried. I mean, Chuck was uh, 81 at the time, I guess, or yeah, he just turned 81 and, you know, you're at 7,000 feet elevation and, you know, I, don't want to overtax him and and uh, he came out to wave at people a couple times just sort of came out and said thank you to people for waiting and and uh, after two hours there were still hundreds of people in line and he had met hundreds of people already and we said uh you know I, it is time to go i mean the show is over and 
He said, are there still people outside in the freezing cold? And he said, yes. Well, if they can wait out there in the freezing cold, I can wait in here until I meet them. And so for like four and a half hours, he sat there until all the people got the opportunity to come in and meet him and take a photograph and get their artwork, you know, dedicated and all that kind of thing, take a picture. Um, and so, you know, I figured after that grand opening, we had something, uh, something good, but that was his participation in the gallery that, you know, had his name on it and, uh, that we were able to really showcase his, his fine art. And it wasn't just Looney Tunes, it was his fine art and, and the other things that he loved to create. Yeah, um, I know that, now I know that y'all sell all sorts of different art. In fact, I'm sitting right next to two Hanna-Barbera cells, a Bullwinkle cell, and then we're, <laughs> we're in a Popeye cell up there that I got from the Chuck Jones Gallery. Yeah, so I, it is, I mean, it is a, a massive diversity of things. and. And sort of the, the rule is that if it makes you smile, makes you laugh, uh, you know, inspires you to have a, a memory that, uh, that you like of a film or a cartoon or a character that you love, then, then we would like to represent that. We would love to be able to provide that. And, uh, and so it has continued to be um, special things like you've just described that we're able to put into the gallery. And, our licenses evolved as well. So to begin with, we were Chuck Jones Looney Tunes. And then many years later, we were Looney Tunes with other artists. And then uh, just a number of years ago, we've been able to add uh, like Hanna-Barbera and we just added the Jetsons. We added uh, Space Jam. We added uh, even the new Space Jam to it. We haven't done any artwork with that yet, but we have the license to do it. We've got- I don't know why either Space Jam. What's that? I don't know why you want either Space Jam. Well, yeah. there are people who are looking for that. And I was asked by a few artists. Um, I, I haven't seen either of the films, so I can't really comment Good on it. for you, Craig. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, um, we've got uh, Christmas Story. We've got Elf. We've got, uh, you know, there's some Batman... There's some Batman uh, original Justice League, you know, 60s and 70s cartoons that we've got. And so, you know, if it, it's fun through Warner Brothers to be able to, um, to, to have our artists dabble in those things. So there's always an evolution. So it's, it's very fun. So I guess that kind of answers the question I have, but I'll ask it anyway, is like, uh, are you just at this point, just trying to continue to acquire new and very different licenses that you haven't had before? and just kind of go where the market takes it. Like if you see that such and such character is really popular, why not pursue that license? Is that how you kind of no, operate? It's not, it's not so much that I'm pursuing other licenses. Warner Brothers is interested in allowing us to play. And, and many of our artists want to be able to play. The, 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 if you love the Looney Tunes, it's likely you'll love the Hanna-Barbera characters. And so the artists certainly do. Uh, enjoy playing with those characters. The other ones kind of came along as as uh, opportunities when we're able to uh, to create those things. Um, and and I think you know things like Disney, other other art publishers have those licenses, and the Simpsons and the those other characters. We can work with them to provide that, but I'm not interested or pursuing other licenses that I would need to maintain. It's a lot of work 
to yeah. to maintain licenses and do yeah. all that kind of thing. And and our history is really the core Looney Tunes, and that's really where um, I think my passion and certainly the passion of most of our artists are based around. And uh, and it's certainly the history and the the reference material that we have best on how to honor Chuck and his his past and his contributions. Was Chuck starting to do Grinch art though right away as well when he did the Looney Tunes limited editions? Um, no, it took us a while. It was actually in the '90s that uh, that we got the license for uh, the the Grinch. That took a long time because there were a lot of people involved in uh, in the Grinch because it was. The film was done by MGM that was acquired by uh, Warner Brothers later. And, uh, and then Dr. Seuss Enterprises still had rights for the characters. And so there were many, many um, parties involved to come up with a license that would work for everyone. So it really wasn't until the 90s that we started, uh, and I think it was 91 or 92 that we really started uh, being able to do that with the Grinch. How about Tom and Jerry? Do you do anything with Tom and Jerry since? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, as a matter of fact, um, the Tom and Jerry uh, is part of our license, and that is a fun one. I think more uh, adolescents, uh, you know, that are now in their teens, know Chuck for Tom and Jerry because Warner Brothers put out the Chuck Jones Tom and Jerry collection on uh, on Blu-ray, and they know that even more than they do the Looney Tunes. Hmm. So. It is, uh, it, it, it is, those are fun characters to play with as well. Yeah. Well, Camden, I don't have anything else to ask. Do you have anything else to ask, really? Nope. Yeah. Well, right. it's well, a pleasure. I tell you what, I, you guys are great. Good questions, both of you. And uh, as you can hopefully tell, I enjoy talking about Chuck and what we do with the family of companies. So um, uh, I know it's taken a long time for me to be able to uh, find this slot, but I would love to do it again. I think I'll be Ben and I'll, I'll, I'll have to come back. Okay. Maybe we could have you both on at the same time. I don't okay. know. That, uh, that would probably blow up the strategy, <laughs> but I would love that. <laughs> um, so how we usually end the show is, uh, you know, we've talked about through the, out the show, but I mean, if you want to plug anything and just, you know, repeat where the galleries are, sure. you know, what exhibits are coming up and what to look forward to if you're going to the Chuck Jones Gallery. That sounds great. I mean, I, one, thank you for uh, allowing me to talk about these, the, the family of companies. I mean, uh, the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity continues to bring programs to the world. And I encourage anybody to go to chuckjonescenter.org to find out uh, either how to get involved or just finding out what we do with the community. Um, as I said, you know, every year we have a red dot auction where artists donate artwork and then they're auctioned off to raise funds to, to perpetuate that. The Chuck Jones Museum is in the process of, of finding venues for future exhibitions. And, you know, we started, uh, you know, very successfully the Smithsonian uh, almost a decade ago and continue to evolve. And, and, uh, and we're actually in the process of we created a virtual gallery and I'll send you links for it that we've got a, a virtual reality version of the last uh, Irvine and uh, it's under corridor.com forward slash Chuck Jones. There is a, an actual, a, the replica of that and you can go into the virtual reality and, 
and see what that exhibits about and see videos on the walls and whatnot. So that what is a, I'm sorry? What service is it? I'm asking because there are two VR, VR, VR stations at my college that I go to. Yeah. There are like two VR, VR rooms where you can go in. It's like a gaming. It's like a yeah. game that you can so, do whatever you want. So these are, you can put on an, an Oculus headset now and, uh, and go in here and be experienced. You can experience it on your, your device or, or your computer. Corridor, C-O-R-R-I-D-A-R.com forward slash Chuck Jones. And that has the, the virtual galleries, but at the very end, there's an Irvine uh, uh, ex exhibition that is there. And so, um, and that's really the next stage of what we're doing. We're in the process of creating virtual reality galleries because I know the experience is, is so important in a, in a gallery uh, realm. And, and actually in August, we're gonna do our second NFT drop of Chuck Jones artwork that'll be out there in digital version that can be experienced in a virtual world. Um, and we still have the galleries in Santa Fe, New Mexico and San Diego and the pop-ups that we do. So chuckjones.com or chuckjonescenter.org are the place to find all the uh, happenings that are going on uh, at, at the gallery or the nonprofits. Very good. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show, Craig. Thank Love you, to have you back. Thank you, Camden. Good to see you. And I look forward to uh, next time. I'll be glad to, I'll coordinate with Ben. You know, now that he's in Florida, we'll be bi-coastal and we'll cover the, cover the country. That'd Sounds be great. <laughs> All right. All right. And uh, that wraps it up for another episode of the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold and join us next time. Thank you for listening and thank you, Craig Cawson and Camden Spees for being my special guests. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode 170 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.